Joseph's life, and it's only going to be four weeks long, so we're moving pretty quick. And so with that said, number one, I need to have a couple things I need to say. Number one, we are going to be moving pretty quick this morning. I apologize for that. Just try to keep up. Number two, we cannot go over what we handled last week again. We just don't have the time to preach two sermons today. Um, so instead, if you were missed last week, for some reason you were not here. It is an essential foundation to the entire series. Okay, so if you missed it, go and listen to it. And you can listen to it on our website. You can listen to it um, via our podcasts and all of those things. So you can find a way to listen to it. I encourage you to do that. Because again, uh, well, I'll tell you where it was. It was at the end of Joseph's life. We were in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where it says there that, that as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Okay, here's the thing. A misunderstanding of that verse leads to a misunderstanding of who God is and what he is like. Okay? And a proper understanding of that, of that scripture right there leads to a good, solid foundation for everything else we're talking about as part of this. So make sure to go back and listen to it. But if last week we were at the end of Joseph's life, this week we're at the beginning of Joseph's life. So grab your Bibles and open them up to Genesis Chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37, we are starting at the very beginning of the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37, there it says in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. His father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. You've probably heard plenty of sermons on Joseph. And you've probably heard plenty of times that Joseph is in the wrong here. That he was tattling on his brothers to his father. And maybe that's the case. I don't think that's what the writer's trying to tell us. And I don't think that really would be a sin if he was. As a parent, it's really, in many cases... Excellent when one of them tattles on the other one. Because then you know what's going on. You don't want someone to tattle when you're the one getting tattled on. Okay? But regardless, it says in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, that if you become aware of someone else's sin and you do not testify against it, that you become guilty of that sin. So I don't know if that's the case. Maybe he is tattling. Maybe he's in the wrong here. Maybe he has the wrong attitude. I don't think that's what it's about. What it is about is this. Right at the very beginning, it says that he is out pasturing the flock with his brothers, but specifically four brothers, not all of his brothers. He's there with the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And if you don't know the story of Jacob, let me walk you through it super, super fast, uh, that, he, uh, that uh, Jacob had two wives, Leah and uh, Rachel, and they were at odds, and they were conflicting, and so they competed. And one of the ways they competed was with giving children. And, and so one wasn't as fast as the other, and so decided to give her servant to Jacob in order to speed up the process. And then the other one decided to give her servant to Jacob, so he ended up with four wives at that point. Two, those two servants are Bilhah and Zilpah, and each of them gave two sons to Jacob. Bilhah gave uh, uh, Dan and Naphtali, and Zilpah gave Gad and Asher. So Joseph is out in the field with four of his brothers. 
And those four brothers apparently do something wrong. And Joseph brings a report of it to his father. Now again, I don't know. I don't feel like I need to defend Joseph and make him into something super spiritual. That's not the point. What is the point is this, that you see that there's already this enmity growing between Joseph and his brothers. And it starts with four of them here in the first couple verses. There's four brothers. Enmity begins. Then it says in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, this says in here, the robe of many colors. Your version may say something, a resplendent robe or an elegant robe. Uh, 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 In fact, this is, we're not sure that it was actually many colors. There's many things that could be an interpretation of that word. But there's definitely more than just favor here that he's bestowing on his son. The word that's used for this robe is used in one other place in the Old Testament, in the Bible. It's used of the robe that is worn by David's daughters to show that they are royalty, that they are princesses, that they are daughters of the king. And so the fact that he gives his son this robe is more than just him saying, oh, I like you best, so I'm going to give you the best gifts. No, this is more him saying, I am elevating you to a position of authority within the family. And so it says here that he was the son of his old age. Of course, Rachel was his favorite wife. He, as the oldest son of Rachel, becomes his favorite son. Now, you think Jacob would have learned by what happened to him and his brother what favoritism in a family will lead to. But apparently Jacob doesn't catch that, doesn't pay attention to it, And so elevates Joseph, apparently, to that position of leadership, that position of the firstborn, even. Reuben was supposed to be the firstborn because of some things he did, which we won't get into. He was removed from that position. We know he no longer had the rights of the firstborn. But now he's going not to the second. Instead, he goes all the way down to number 11, Joseph, and elevates him all the way up to number one. It's a big deal. And that's what he does. And as a result, then you see the enmity growing. No longer is it just four brothers who are upset with Joseph. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So it goes from four brothers to 11 or at least 10, depending on whether Benjamin's a part of this, we don't know. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And we told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And again, you've probably heard sermons that have said that Joseph is in the wrong on this too. That he's rubbing his brother's faces in this dream. And possibly that's what's happening. I don't know for sure that that's what the writer is trying to say. In fact, I don't think it is. Dreams in the Old Testament were different than dreams are now. Dreams now we see as like a window into the psyche of the person who has them. Right? Someone has a dream. It speaks about what's going on in their brain. For us as parents, I was just talking about this in the early service. 
that there has been in our lives lately, death. And so as part of that, we're paying very close attention to see, okay, how are our kids responding to this? Because we want to parent them through that, right? Well, the other day, Asher comes into our bedroom. Early in the morning, he had had a dream, and he was distraught. And he says, in my dream, you and mommy lost each other. And you were very sad. And I was sad too. Okay, to us, as soon as we hear that, we don't think of that as God speaking that we're about to lose each other. What we think of is, okay, my son is trying to comprehend this idea of someone leaving us and going to be with Jesus and trying to figure out and process all of those things. And so now as a parent, I take that into consideration when I'm talking to them and and I walk them through that. I understand it in that way. In the Old Testament, that's not how they would have seen dreams. A dream was a a window into the divine and what God was speaking And so when the brothers hear this dream, it's not that Joseph is rubbing it in their face. And maybe he is. I don't know. But at the very least, what it is, is they are seeing, okay, now God is saying, not only do you get to be the firstborn, but we're going to bow down to you. They seem more mad with Joseph because of what God has said, not what Joseph is saying. But regardless, it says that they hate him all the more for it. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves, bow ourselves to the ground before you? Okay, this dream is a step further than the last dream. In fact, I think it's incredibly different than the last dream. When you look at the last dream, it's a dream that will be fulfilled in the immediate future. His brothers will, we know, come to him in Egypt and bow down on the ground before him. But then he takes it a step further, or the dream takes it a step further. He says, not only were your brothers bow down to you, but your father is and your mother is. Why is that significant? Where is his mother? She's dead. Well, wait a second. How can someone who is dead bow down before Joseph? How can that work? Unless this isn't just about a dream about something that will happen here on earth. But when we look back at the ancestral lineage, we will say that Joseph had greater prominence than even his father and his mother. That's a pretty big deal. And as a result, Jacob responds and says, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down before you? And so you see even the isolation for Joseph begins to grow, continues to grow, I should say. It started with four brothers, then it became all the brothers, and now at least the indication is that even Jacob is upset about it. Now the very next verse, in verse 11, it says, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Doesn't apparently tell Joseph. But he at least holds on to it, saying, Okay, this is the divine speaking. So maybe there's something more to this. Regardless of all of those things, then something happens. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. 
And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Verse 14. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So they were based in the valley of Hebron. And when we picture this, the picture in this valley of Hebron is not one tent and just one little family. These were like mobile villages. Because not only did they have Jacob and all of his family, but they had servants and they had flocks. And so there were many tents. And this is a big deal. So they planted in the valley of Hebron. And he says, I need you to go out and check on your brothers. And, and, and it seems as if they're in Shechem. Now, we know where Hebron is, the Valley of Hebron, and we know where Shechem is, and this isn't a 30-minute jaunt. This isn't him leaving and saying, okay, it'll take me 20 minutes to get there, and if I have enough time, I can stop and get a smoothie. This is him realizing that it is about 50 miles away, a journey of four to five days. And so when I read this, there's a couple things that kind of pop out as odd. These stories are not like happening in a vacuum, okay? Shechem shows up in other places. In fact, it showed up three chapters before. That's where Jacob and his sons used to live. But something went bad. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was raped. And so Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves to get vengeance So they say, you can marry her if you like, but here's what you need to do. You need to have all the men circumcised. So they apparently cared enough to get all the men circumcised. And while they were recovering, Simeon and Levi apparently led an attack against them and killed them. Now that's the kind of thing that people don't easily forget. And so when it says that they are in Shechem... The last time they were in Shechem, if you turn one page to the left in your Bible, and mine it's one page to the left, 34 verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So again, really very interesting to me at least, that, so as a result, they move on to this valley of Hebron, and, and that's where they plant. But when the brothers are figuring out where should we go to pasture our flocks, and they set out that they go 50 miles away to the place where they used to live, where they are surrounded by enemies, where they are stink in the nostrils of the inhabitants of the land. Now, maybe they remembered that the grass was greener there. Who knows? But for some reason, that's where they go. And apparently, Jacob is concerned enough in verse chapter 37, verse 14. He says, so he said to them, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he is concerned enough with their well-being that he dispatches Joseph. But even that is interesting. So he's concerned about his sons, and apparently Joseph wasn't with them. But in order to make sure that they're okay, he sends his son Joseph, his favorite, the first 
off on his own to where the enemy is to check on his brothers. A journey of 50 miles. I don't know if you can hear the vulnerability of Joseph growing. He's kind of stretching beyond the covering of his father. And it says there in 37, verse 14, So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So he's wandering around Shechem, walking through the fields, yelling, Sons of Jacob! Brothers, where are you? And it just so happens that there's a guy there. Thankfully, this guy, we don't know where he came from or how he heard the brothers and the fact that they were moving on. Thankfully, this guy has no ill will towards him. Because he tells them, oh yes, I heard them, and they went on to Dothan. And Dothan would have been another 15 miles beyond Shechem. So you can see and hear that the covering is being stretched, that he's getting more and more vulnerable. Verse 18. The perspective flips here, and it goes to the perspective of the brothers. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they see him from afar off. We don't know what it is that they notice about him, that they know immediately that it's Joseph, but we know that he's wearing his coat. Shows up in just a few moments. So probably it's the fact that he's wearing this coat. Doesn't say why he's wearing the coat. Maybe he just wants to be warm. Maybe he's trying to send a message to his brothers. Maybe his father, who has dispatched him to check on his brothers, wants to display that authority that he's vested in him. I don't know. But he's wearing this jacket, this coat. And they see that from afar, and it gives them enough of an indication that it's Joseph coming that they can start planning. So they say, let's kill him. And let's throw him into one of these pits. And the word for pits here is the word cistern. So this area has sporadic rain. And so in order to make sure that when it's not raining, they have water, they dig these massive wells that collect the water when it rains and then hold on to it. So it's essentially an underwater, underground tank for the water, okay? So it's a well. That's another way to say it. It's a well. So they aren't saying, let's kill him and throw him into a grave. They're saying, let's kill him and throw him into the well. As if killing him isn't enough, they got to kill him and throw him into the well. But it's not like a six-foot deep hole because we know he can't get out of it. So it's apparently deeper than that. So their plan is to kill him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And when you read this, at first it seems like Reuben is being awfully noble here. 
seems like Reuben is really stepping up his game because he's working the system in order to restore Joseph to his father. But in reality, and I don't feel like just in the same way that I don't feel like I need to make Joseph better than he really is, I don't feel like I need to make the brothers any worse than they really are. But let's be really clear that even his motivation in this is selfish. It shows up in a verse in the future. He's doing this for his own motivation in order to be restored to the good favor of his father, okay? So Reuben's not like going out of his way here, but apparently Reuben leaves at this point after saying, let's not shed blood, let's just throw him into the pit. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So he comes up and it says they stripped him of his robe. And the word that's translated as stripped of his robe is the same word that's used when they skin an animal. So they peel this thing off of him. And then they throw him into the pit. Okay? Thankfully there's no water in it. Verse 25. This is what gets me. Then they sat down to eat. So Joseph's in the pit, and they're sitting right outside the pit, eating a meal. I doubt they prayed beforehand, and I doubt they looked each other in the eyes while they were eating, because we know exactly what Joseph's doing right now. They mention it later on in Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, here's what it says. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. We know what Joseph's doing. Joseph is begging them to let him out of the pit. And it says that he's not just asking them politely. And it's not something that he's doing sweetly. It says that it's distress of soul. So it's not like he's like, okay, you guys, you got me. No more dreams for me. (laughs) This is him crying out, pleading with them, let me out of the pit. And they're sitting there eating a meal. This is a really bad place for them to be in. Because in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, it talks about this. It says of the adulteress that she eats her meal and wipes her mouth and then says, I've done nothing wrong. But you just got to picture that, that I've done nothing wrong. But here they are sitting outside the well while he's crying with them. And maybe he even started when they were skinning him of that robe. But they ignore him. They sit down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So Judah says, well, what are we gaining from this? Yeah, I know we get rid of him. But what gain do we get? What what if instead, oh, look, Ishmaelites, which, by the way, who are the Ishmaelites? They're cousins. Ishmael and Isaac. Go back a little bit. 
So what they're saying is, well, we don't want this blood on our hands, so we'll find somebody else to do the dirty work, and if we do that, then the blood won't be on our hands, it'll be on their hands. So he is our brother after all, so let's just go ahead and sell him. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which would have been a decent little price for a slave, but maybe not for a brother, but that's what they sell him for. Off to their cousins. Then it says... Apparently Reuben was gone and comes back when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? So again, uh, how am I going to go back to dad now? This was my big plan. What about me? Not, what about Joseph? Where do I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Verse 34, Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. I think it's really very interesting First off, that they didn't do it themselves. It says that they sent a messenger with the robe. They didn't want to face their father when they actually had to tell them. They sent ahead and brought it to him. It's what it says. But I think it's also really very interesting that Jacob deceived his father using the skins of a goat, putting them on his arms so that it felt like Esau. And now his sons deceive him with the robe they skinned off of Joseph, dipped in the blood of a goat. It's almost like this history thing is repeating itself and he's doing, dealing with the same things that he dealt with as a boy. Verse 35, as he's mourning, here's what happens. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So their big plan fails because he says I will mourn my son Joseph until the day I die if they wanted to be rid of him no longer be first in their father's mind that didn't happen at all in fact now he's fully captive to mourning for his son and what does it say that all of his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him what did that look like They come up to him and pat him on the shoulder and say, Dad, it's okay, knowing all along that they're the ones who caused his pain. And how about Judah when he goes to comfort him and Simeon's watching, knowing that Judah's the one who sold him into slavery. And Judah knowing that Simeon knows that he's the one who sold him into slavery. And and Judah knowing that Simeon knows that Judah knows that Simeon knows that he's the one who sold him into slavery. Can you imagine the dynamics and, and the tension constantly that they can't even mention what happens and you can't go back and redo it? Joseph's not the only one in a pit here. Joseph's in a pit. His father says, I will go down to the pit in mourning. And every single one of his brothers is stuck in a pit of guilt and condemnation and responsibility. And here's where Joseph is. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. He's hogtied on the back of a camel on his way to Egypt. And I read this passage of scripture and there's several things that pop up in my mind. The first thing is, who's responsible? Who's responsible for this evil? Of course, of course the brothers are. 
Of course, the brothers had jealousy and anger, and they let that grow into rage and hatred, and then eventually took that out on Joseph. Of course, the brothers are responsible. But you know, Jacob's kind of responsible, too. It says in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, that he hated his wife, Leah. You don't think that's going to get passed down to the kids? And what about the favoritism? Again, he knows what happened with his brother. Esau chased him, wanted to kill him, and he had to run for his life. You think somehow when you show favoritism in your kids that it will be different? Yeah, I'd say Jacob's responsible. His mother's, his mother is responsible. Because it all kind of cascades down. In reality, we're talking about generational things are responsible. The fact that the Ishmaelites are even mentioned, that, that, that there's these cascading effects going all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael, there's a whole lot of people responsible. And sometimes when we find ourselves in the pit, I think we wonder, who's responsible? Sometimes it's our fault. Maybe Joseph is at fault here. Maybe it's our fault that we're in the pit. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's someone else's fault. Maybe our families, they're the ones who put us in the pit. Sometimes it's generational things. And sometimes pit just happens. But the next question that pops up in my mind is where is God? Where's God? Where's God? He hasn't been mentioned in this chapter. Look, search, scour it. There's no God, no God of our Father. There's no Jehovah. There's no Lord. There's nothing. In fact, the last time that God's mentioned is all the way back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 13. When it says that he revealed himself to Jacob. That was 10 years before. And he doesn't come up in Joseph's life again until 39 verse 2. Where's God? Where's God when Joseph was bringing a bad report about his brothers and enmity starts to grow? Where's God when his father shows him favoritism and as a result the enmity continues to grow? Where's God during the dreams? And where's God when he leaves the valley of Hebron and goes to Shechem? Where's God when he goes through Shechem and goes on his way to Dothan? Why is God not in Dothan? Where is he? Where is he when Jacob's, or Joseph's in the pit, clawing at the side and sliding back down and crying out, please let me out of here? Where's God? Where's God in our suffering? Where is God when we're in the pit? Who cares who caused it? Where is God when we're in the pit? I think there's another question, and I think it's a super important question for us to ask. Because last week we were talking about the fact that God is not the author of your evil. And that's so true. But you got to nuance that a little bit. And this might make us angry God is not the author of our evil, but he allows it. Okay? So why does God allow evil against Joseph in Dothan? 
This isn't the only time that Dothan shows up in Scripture. Shows up a thousand years later in 2 Kings chapter 6. In fact, the story there is so incredible, I want to share it with you. Because what happens is Elisha is apparently prophesying to the king of Israel who's at war with the king of Syria and telling the king of Israel where to go and where not to go and where the king of Syria will be. And so the king of Syria says, who's the betrayer? Who is it that's turned against me? Who's telling them where we're going to be? And they say, no, it's not us. It's this guy, Elisha, who is telling him what's happening in your bedroom. So he says, I got to get him. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 13, and he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, the servant is the servant of Elisha, the man of God, rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Wow, what an incredible moment of display of God's power. And God says no. And he prevents evil from being done to Elisha. What an incredible thing that happens in Dothan for Elisha. So why does it happen for Elisha and not for Joseph? Did he send the angels home that day? Had he not started up the chariots of fire? Why does he allow evil against Joseph, but not against Elisha? Why doesn't he send the angels and the chariots of fire and the, and the horses to surround Joseph? Where is God? you're going to write one thing down from this sermon today let it be this never mistake the silence of God for the absence of God never mistake God's silence for God's absence the very first time after this that it says that the name of God in Joseph's story is in 39 verse 2 and you know what it says there the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So if that's the first time that the Lord shows up again in Joseph's story after Genesis chapter 35, verse 13, 10 years before, does that mean that God was taking a break? That God stepped out for a moment? Does that mean that maybe... God was on his phone and forgot that he had steaks on the grill. Oh, earth, i got to get back to that. And he gets there just in time for Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. No. See, God was with Joseph in 39, verse 2. And God was with Jacob in 35, verse 13. And he was there all in between. Don't mistake the silence of God for the absence of God. The reason why it says that the Lord was with Joseph in this scripture is because they recognized that God was with Joseph. It says, 
And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. And get what it says in verse 3, the exact same thing. And what does it say in verse 21, the exact same thing, and the same thing in verse 23. Over and over and over again, it's them recognizing that the Lord is with Joseph. But the Lord hasn't departed from Joseph. Where was God when Joseph was in the pit? Well, we know exactly where God was because of Psalm 139, verse 7. It says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where was God when Joseph was in the pit? God was in the pit with Joseph. And that statement alone, we could stop. God was in the pit with Joseph when he was crying out and jumping up on the side and sliding back down. God was in the pit with Joseph. We could stop. But the statement isn't done. I think we can one-up it. I think we can take it a step further because not only was God in the pit with Joseph, but God was in the pit before Joseph was in the pit. Verse 24, what does it say? It says that when they throw him in the pit, it was empty because there was no water in it. Now, wait a second. I thought they were in Dothan to be able to feed the sheep. I thought they were in Dothan because that's where they wanted to pasture the flocks. Why would they be there unless the grass was green? How do you have green grass in an empty cistern? Well, God. Which means that before Joseph left the valley of Hebron, before he went through Shechem, before he got to Dothan, and certainly before they threw him in the pit, the Lord had dried it up. So when we find ourselves in suffering, we know that God is with us in that suffering. But even more, he went before us in that suffering and prepared the way through that suffering. That statement should blow your minds. God was in the pit before Joseph was in the pit. But it's still not done yet. Because here's the thing. When you're down in the pit and you're suffering and you jump at the sides and slide back down, when you're crying out and you're like, okay, God, thank you for being here and comforting me. But I don't really need you in the pit with me. I need you outside of the pit making a difference up there. See, God was in the pit before Joseph, but the pit couldn't hold him. So Joseph is in the bottom of the pit screaming. And his brothers are at the top of the pit eating. And along came the caravan. Who do you think sent the caravan? God was in the pit before Joseph, but the pit couldn't hold him. He was also working all around the pit. So fine. Maybe we don't see him in the scriptures, but he's obviously there. Don't mistake this silence of God for the absence of God. But what about that other question? Why doesn't God prevent that evil from happening to Joseph? Why does God send angels to protect Elisha and not angels to protect Joseph? Why does he put angels all around him to keep evil from happening to him 
in Dothan, but not Joseph? Man, that's a good question. And unfortunately, it's above my pay grade to answer it. Some people would say, and you've probably heard sermons, that God is developing character in Joseph. Maybe that's true. But that's above my pay grade. I don't know why God allows evil and suffering in your life. And I will never come to you and say he's developing character in you. And so the only way I think I can answer that question, why does God send angels to protect Elisha, and not send angels to protect Joseph, the only way I can answer that question is with another question. Who says he didn't? Joseph sent out from the valley of Hebron and all by himself walks through Shechem. Surrounded by people who want vengeance against his family. And he's all alone, wandering the fields. The beauty of 2 Kings chapter 6 is that it's like the veil of reality is pulled back and we see what's really happening. We see the angels arrayed. But how many times in scripture does God show up like that? And we aren't even told that's what happens. We just see the results. And how many times in our lives does God protect us from evil and we have no idea? Who says there weren't angels surrounding Joseph when he was walking through Shechem? And who in the world is this guy who just finds him? Some people believe that he's an angel. Because how in the world would he have heard the brother saying, let's go on to nothing? Some people believe that that's an angel. I don't know if it is, but I do know that he made it all the way from the valley of Hebron, all by himself, to Dothan, right through where the enemy was. Who says he wasn't surrounded by angels? And who says that there's not angels arrayed around that pit? And who says there's not angels arrayed around that camel that he's hogtied on? I can't answer that question. And I can't answer the question of why there's suffering in your life. I don't know who's the cause of it. I don't know where it came from. We've already talked what God can do with it last week. But God here is confoundingly hidden in the scripture. It doesn't change the fact that he's there. So do not mistake God's silence for his absence. I can assure you in the midst of whatever it is that you have gone through and are going through, that God is not absent. He's not asleep, and he's not apathetic, even though he may be silent, and he may be subtle. He's there. Because there was never a moment that Joseph was on his own. There was never a moment that God was not with him. But I think probably the most beautiful thing about this passage of Scripture when I read it 
is that we always see ourselves as Joseph at the bottom of the pit. But I think more often than not, we're the brothers eating the meal. I think we like to think of ourselves as the ones who are suffering and not the ones who are causing the suffering. We're the brothers patting our dad on the back saying, it's okay, dad, knowing that we're the ones who cause that suffering. And the pit that we find ourselves in is the pit of guilt and condemnation and responsibility and the fact that we will never be free from that. But I think we need to go back to that statement and I think we need to change just a few words. God was in the pit before Joseph, but the pit couldn't hold him. Let's take God and replace that with Jesus. And let's take Joseph and let's replace that with you. Jesus was in the pit before you, but the pit couldn't hold him. Do you notice the similarities between Joseph's story and Jesus's? Sold for a bag of silver wrongly and falsely, imprisoned and accused, put in the ground, but that ground couldn't hold him. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. More often than not, we are the brothers at the top And the pit we find ourselves in is our own condemnation. But regardless of the pit that we find ourselves in, and regardless of how we got there, Jesus was in the pit before you were in the pit, but the pit couldn't hold him. Let that sink deep into your soul right now. Let it get past your mind and make it into your heart. Let it be a deep, felt knowledge. Because there's a reason why you're here today. And if you are carrying guilt and condemnation, the time has come for you to put that aside. Because Jesus even went before you into that. He became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. I was told the story this week of a lady in Canada. This last week, her child went in for surgery. Routine. The child died. She's like, why, God? So she got on Facebook and she saw a quote that one of her friends had posted. And that quote was this. It's not that everything happens for a reason. It's that God gives reason to everything that happens. See, we had posted that on Facebook. And somebody shared it. And a friend of them shared it. And right after her son died, she found that quote. And she said, I've read it 20 times a day since I saw it. 
And she said, the only reason why I'm standing before you at this funeral right now is because it gives me the strength. God does that. Because he went into that pit and prepared the way for her before she even knew it was coming. And so this morning, I don't know what you're going through and the struggles that you have. And maybe you would say, truly, I'm Joseph at the bottom of the pit. But maybe you would say, I'm the brothers at the top of the pit, having thrown Joseph in. But regardless, Jesus has gone before you into that pit. But that pit could not hold him. Deeply into your hearts, I pray that would seep. Oh God, I thank you 